Uh, last week we, we talked about uh, idols and how uh, the people of Israel had some very overt and obvious idols that they worshipped even when we saw the golden calf. But we, we talked last week about how we have more subtle idols in our lives. And we also stepped into this role of intercessory prayer and the role that, that Moses uh, played in that way, in that setting, and in the story uh, that we were focused on last week. Next week, uh, Willie Reimer is actually going to be here and he's going to be sharing with us. Uh, some of you would know him. He's the executive director of our Canadian conference. And he'll be uh, speaking into this series as well, too, on some uh, texts that are a little bit further on uh, in, in Deuteronomy. But I also want to invite you, if, if uh, you want to be a part of just meeting with him at 9.30, I'm going to be interviewing him in the lounge and just talking with him a little bit about, actually, about the role of prayer and intercessory prayer and just some of the things that he's seeing uh, related to prayer across Canada and in different places that, that he is connected with and involved. So I'd encourage you to consider that uh, for next Sunday. So today, though, we're talking about uh, tithes and a generous life. And, and what we see in Scripture in the, the book of Deuteronomy, in these chapters that we'll look at, specific to the tithe and what it teaches there, and, now as, and also as we go into uh, the New Testament, but also what we see in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy of this call to living a generous life and, and all of what that means. And so let me just start by reading uh, Deuteronomy 14, verse uh, 22 to 23. He says, uh, you must set aside a tithe of your crops, one-tenth of all the crops that you harvest each year. Bring this tithe to the designated place of worship, the place that the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored, and eat it there in his presence. This applies to your tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil, and the firstborn males of your flocks and herds. Doing this will teach you always to fear the Lord your God. When it comes to this topic, I think there is a tension that we all struggle with and wrestle with at different times, isn't there? Because money is something that we, like it or not, are faced with decisions about it every single day. Like every day we are making choices about what we will spend our money on, how we will steward our money, and all of those kinds of things. And yet it's one of the things that we know, uh, even as we talked about last week, uh, we, we know that it's one of those things that can so easily become an idol in our lives in such subtle ways. And so, on the one hand, it's something that we deal with every day, have to address every day, have to make decisions about every day, and yet not to be consumed by it and not have it become a subtle or even not so subtle idol in our lives. And so that's one of the, the tension points that we see in this topic, and we'll see it here in our text as well. And so as we're in this series called The Gospel According to Moses, we will also see that it very much aligns and it's part of the same gospel according to Jesus. And as we go into the New Testament, the themes that continue on and how they continue on, and we'll look uh, at that uh, today. And so here uh, we have Moses again standing on the plains of Moab with the people of Israel, preparing their hearts, their minds, preparing them for all that will come ahead and for what lies in front of them as they are called to step into and take this gift, receive this gift of the promised land that God has promised to these people. And it's interesting how the tithe is a teaching point that Moses says, you're going to have to deal with this. You're going to have to continue to walk in this as you enter the promised land and as you become, continue to be God's people. And so it's a teaching that he is reframing for them uh, and focusing on the theological and the sociological highlights and the implications for them with very little attention to administrative detail. 
And sometimes we get caught up in the administrative detail about tithing and about, well, you know, how do we do this? You know, is it, do we tithe on net or gross? Do we give to the church or to other things? And we get bogged down in all these detailed things, and some of which I think will be answered here today, some of which maybe will not for you. But, but Moses is just giving them this principle of what does it mean to just be involved in tithing and to live a generous life and to even go beyond that. You take any relationship, any family, and you just sort of plonk a whole bunch of money in there or even a little bit of money in there, and we know that it creates challenges, right? Money is one of those things that God has given us as a gift from God to use, to steward, to enjoy, and to bless others with, and to recognize that all that we have belongs to Him, which that in itself can be a very challenging teaching and yet a teaching that we th- see throughout all of Scripture. I think that uh, pastors and churches often err on one, or two, one of two sides on this topic. We, we oftentimes will fall into one extreme or the other. And sometimes uh, churches, they spend way too much time talking about money and way too much time talking about giving and so on. And it just sort of comes across as a constant push and the only focus and so on and so forth. So you can err on that side of the extreme. But you can also err on the other side where you actually don't talk about it enough. And again, if there are all of those scriptures, over 2,000 verses that speak in scripture about money, uh, obviously it's something that we have to pay attention to. Obviously it's something that mattered to God that we have to understand more deeply and and know how it is that we are called to steward it. I think one of the other uh, reasons maybe that sometimes people or pastors err on that side of not talking about it enough is because it can be awkward. Because it's like a conflict of interest. Because it's like, well, when your salary comes from the giving of people in the church, you kind of go, well, how can I really talk about that? And in the circles, you know, when I'm in different settings and we're talking about governance or different leadership things, one of the things that we often say is that conflict of interest is quite common, actually. It happens in all kinds of different ways and places. And what you have to do is, is not pretend that it's not there or always eliminate it, but what you have to do is manage it. So you just sort of have, and one of the ways that you manage it is that you, you start by just sort of declaring it and stating that, that it's there. So right at the start, I'm just sort of declaring, okay, conflict of interest here. As I talk about some things, you, just so that you know, uh, might be some awkward moments. We'll see. I think it'll be okay. Um, but it's something that we do need to talk about more because even in this text that we'll see today, it talks about the tribe of, of Levi. And it talks about the Levites. Well, who were the Levites? They were the people who served in the church. They were the people who served at the tabernacle. The people who served in the temple. And they were this tribe, one of the tribes of Israel from Levi descended down, who God had set apart to do this. To lead the people in these things. And we'll see in our text today that, that they had a unique kind of role. Okay, one of the arms of the tribe of Levi was through the person of Aaron, and those were the people who were the high priests, the ones who served in a unique capacity. But this whole tribe of Levi, and the Levites as they are referred to, and you'll see that in our text today, are the ones who were set apart and the ones who were called there to serve the church and to lead in the church. And so there are things that are said there about them. Aaron, interestingly enough, was, like I said, the descendant who the, the high priest came through, and he was the brother of Moses. I mean, talk about a conflict of interest there. I mean, he's the brother of the guy who's leading these people. Okay, But that's who Aaron was, and he's leading them through the things that he did in, in the, the assignments that were given to him. 
They were given no allotment of land, the Levites. In fact, Moses says here in this text that we'll see in just a minute, he says they will receive no allotment of land because entering into the promised land is still in front of them. But he's saying to the people that this tribe of people, the Levites, are the ones who they actually do not get an inheritance of land. Their inheritance is God himself. And so the, you as the people of Israel have to care for them, have to provide for them in different ways, and, and they receive a portion of the tithe. But they in turn also were to tithe for the high priests. And so it went on like that as well. It's interesting, this designation of one tribe, these Levites, is quite an unusual thing. And it comes from this unusual concept of this idea of the first fruits that we see throughout Scripture. And it goes right back to the Exodus story and the last plague that the people of Israel, as they were in Egypt, and this plague of, of the killing of the firstborn, and how the, the Passover happened, how the, the, the blood was put on the doorposts, and how the firstborn of the people of Israel were saved, and the firstborn of the people of Egypt were not saved. And these were set apart for God. And so this whole idea of first fruits comes out over and over again in Scripture and goes right back to that story. So even the people of the, the tribe of Levi is part of this first fruits principle that we see in Scripture. Well, let's keep reading in, in Deuteronomy 14, and I want to keep going in verse 24 uh, and following. Moses continues, and he says, Now when the Lord your God blesses you with a good harvest, the place of worship he chooses for his name to be honored might be too far for you to bring the tithe. So if, you, so, if so, you may sell the tithe portion of your crops and herds and put the money in a pouch and go to the place the Lord, has, the Lord your God has chosen. So again, it was an agrarian culture. It was all about agriculture. They didn't typically do the tithe or anything in monetary, in a currency. Well, their currency was livestock, grains, olive oil, those kinds of things, wine, whatever the case may be. And so they would tithe out of that produce and out of the things. And so Moses is saying, if... if where you're to go and bring the tithe is too far, well, then you can exchange it for a currency, put it in a bag and take it with you, is what he's saying. Then he says in verse 26, when you arrive, you may use the money to buy any kind of food you want, cattle, sheep, goats, wine, or other alcoholic drink. Then feast there in the presence of the Lord your God and celebrate with your household. And do not neglect the Levites, there's the Levites, in your town, for they will receive no allotment of land among you. At the end of every third year, bring the entire tithe of that year's harvest and store it in the nearest town. Give it to the Levites who will receive no allotment of land among you as well as to the foreigners living among you, the orphans and the widows in your town, towns, so that they can eat and be satisfied. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. David uh, Payne is an author and he says that the tithe or tithing has really two values to it, at least two essential ones. The first one being that it is, it is to be a gift to God. It's this recognition that, that everything that we have belongs to God, and so we return a portion of that to God, and we give it in, in our giving in that way, in one form or another. The second value that tithing has is to provide for the temples and the temple personnel. In other words, those who, the Levites that were there, those who serve in that capacity. And so it's a... Uh, it's, uh, affirmed also in the New Testament as we look in Scripture there, this whole idea of, of giving to the Levites and so on. This is where that conflict of interest thing comes in. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verse 13 and 14. As we go to the New Testament, we see this principle continues there in Paul's teaching. He says in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 9, Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple? 
And those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. Then if you flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul continues this teaching and he says this, Elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. And in another place, those who work deserve their pay. Should we just linger on that text for a while? Is that awkward enough? Yeah? But what we see is, is the principle in the Old Testament continuing on into the New Testament. And the same teaching in a different form, in a different setting. But the principle continues there of this role of the Levites and those who serve in that capacity, those who serve in the church. And so that's part of what we see in this text. But one thing I do want to say is I want to say, on behalf of those of us who do serve in the church, thank you. Thank you for the generosity of this church and for the blessing that we receive through that. It truly is a gift to be able to work and to serve in the church and to be supported to do that. So I don't want to miss this opportunity to say thank you because that is very significant. If you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 14, I want to just continue there. We see that not only as this author, David Payne, says these values of a gift to God, acknowledging everything is his, of caring for those who serve in that capacity like the Levites, but, but thirdly is it reminds us of the fear of the Lord. In verse 23, we had already read that. He says, doing this will teach you always to fear the Lord your God. In other words, when you give of your money, when you give of your first fruits, it teaches you to fear the Lord your God. And so in the Old Testament, it talks a lot about this, about the fear of the Lord, about the awesomeness of God and the recognition that we are sinful people, that he is God and that we are not. And then as we come into the New Testament, we see that still, that theme still coming through, but it it almost comes through more in the idea that it, it shows up in belief, in faith. That when we walk in faith and in belief of what God has said, that it reminds us that God is God and that we are not, and that we can trust him and take him at his word. And one of the places that we do that in is, is how we handle our finances and this whole idea of tithing and of living a generous life. And so we see that, that tithing is an Old Testament principle. And as we come into the New Testament, we see, and we'll see in just a minute, that it is affirmed, but it's really more so the starting point. It, it kind of goes from tithing in, in this one-tenth aspect to, in the New Testament, to living a generous life, even though that generous life thing is, is right there in that Deuteronomy text, as we'll continue to see. But tithing, in many ways, is, is kind of like training wheels on a bike. You know, training wheels on a bike, you keep them there and you use them for the time that you need them. And while they kind of help you, but eventually training wheels actually start to limit you and slow you down. And eventually you just don't need them anymore and you release them. And when you get rid of your training wheels, and I remember when our kids went through that, there was just this freedom that you can ride a bike now and you don't have to have training wheels on it. And in many ways, tithing is, has been referred to like that. Of, the, of these training wheels that work for a while and then eventually we can sort of abandon them because there is freedom in that. But freedom comes from discipline you talk to any athlete or any exceptional musician and you you watch them and we all do this all the time and you watch somebody who is just exceptional at what they do and you, you watch somebody how somebody plays an instrument and you go wow like they just play with such freedom they don't even look at their notes it's just astounding how did they get there hours and countless hours and countless hours of discipline 
Malcolm Gladwell, he talks about the fact that it's got to be like 10,000 hours of discipline on a task to become exceptional, to have that kind of freedom. And so in many ways, the tithe is like that. It's that spiritual discipline of helping us to practice and to work on it and to, to kind of walk this thing out of what it means to live a generous life so that we can actually experience greater freedom, greater generosity where the tithe doesn't need to limit us anymore, but it suddenly becomes this thing that we no longer need because of the freedom and the generosity. But sometimes we need to get there by that spiritual discipline. And we need training in that. We need help in that. Research shows that. And and statistics show that for those in terms of giving percentages of income to charity, just charity in general, for those who are not part of the church, non-church people, the, the average giving to charity for people is between 1% and 2% of all income. For those in the church, for those who would call themselves believers and followers of Christ, that giving average to income of overall giving to charity of any kind jumps up to about 2 to 4%. So obviously, we have room to grow. If you think of the tithe meaning one-tenth of a tenth, then it says that for a lot, we're not tithing. Because there's lots of room to grow in this area and this call that God gives of helping us to know what it means to live a generous life. And this is a, a, an Old Testament principle that is there to help us. Jesus, in the New Testament, in, uh, if you look in Luke chapter 11, verse 42, we see that Jesus in his teaching, he affirms the tithe, but then he takes it further and he pushes them to even further consideration of a generous life. In Luke verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 42, Jesus says, What sorrow awaits you Pharisees? Remember these Pharisees, these religious teachers of the law, they're the ones who did everything right. The legalism of just doing everything to the nth degree. It was just always perfection. At least that was their goal for them, of following the law. He says, What sorrow awaits you Pharisees, for you're careful to tithe even, even the tiniest income from your herb gardens. Where's that herb gardens? I never know how to say that word. Um, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. So Jesus is saying, yeah, tithe, it's good. It's a good thing to do. He affirms this Old Testament principle, but he says, don't neglect the more important thing. He says, it's not just about the legalistic keeping of the tithe. He says, are you living a generous life? Do you actually care for those where you see injustice? Do you care for those who are marginalized and oppressed? Are you giving of your time and of yourself and of your resources and expertise to invest in the lives of others who are actually in a more vulnerable place than you. So Jesus affirms the tithe, but he raises the bar. And he says, that's a starting point, good for you, but now let's go further. Can you go further in that? And this call to a generous life. So sometimes we think that the legalism of the tithe is, is something, and all the minutia of details and questions about you know, and we can get so immobilized at times. And I, I actually sometimes think it's an excuse. Well, if we just ask enough questions that we don't have really good, clear biblical answers to, is this net or gross? It'll just say, you know, we'll just sort of not make a decision and not land anywhere. I think as we look at the New Testament, we'd see that Jesus saying to us, just start somewhere. Live a generous life. Just begin to give. There's freedom. And we'll see that as we look at a text in Second Corinthians a little bit later. One of the things that we cannot mistake in all of Scripture, as we go through the Old Testament to the New Testament, is this idea that one of the measures of authentic spirituality is our disposition to the poor and the vulnerable. 
You cannot mistake that. You can't get away from it. You can't get away from it in Jesus' teaching. You can't get away from it in Old Testament teaching. You can't get away from it in Paul's teaching. It's there everywhere throughout Scripture. How is it that you treat those who are marginalized and poor and struggling? What does that look like in your life? How are you responding in grace and in generosity? So we're called to live by faith. We're called to trust in God. With this idea of the tithe being the starting point. And some people say it this way. They say we need to live in a way of of these three words. Of it's give, save, live. First of all, we give. And we give out out of a generous heart. And we give out of obedience and trust in God. That God will provide all our needs. Then we save. And we see that throughout scripture. The importance of saving. And of doing that wisely. And then lastly, living. That we live on the rest. And for so many people, we reverse it. We do it in opposite order. And we we live first, then we save, and then we give if we have anything left over. And the problem is that our giving can never exceed our lifestyle. And so we need to learn how to give, then save, then live. And I think there's a challenge there for every one of us of how we think of these things. And do we trust God at his word of what he says about these topics? Let's keep looking in, in Deuteronomy chapter 15. This special consideration for the poor and this call to the generous life, even to the poor here. And I'm just going to read through. There's a few of the verses that will be up there, but I'm going to just read through some of these. And it starts off in verse 1 where this interesting text of how these debts should be canceled. About this generosity to those who have debts. At the end of every seventh year, so the Sabbath year principle, you must cancel the debts of everyone who owes you money. All the bankers and creditors are nervous now. This is how it must be done. Everyone must cancel the loans they have made to their fellow Israelites. They must not demand payment from their neighbors or relatives for the Lord's time of release has arrived. This release from debt, however, applies only to your fellow Israelites, not to the foreigners living among you. So really, there's probably about two kinds of debtors or people in debt at that time. I mean, there's commercial debt, which is about business transactions and so on. And then there's also debt that just came out of poverty and out of tough times, hard circumstances, maybe even bad choices, but but just hardship debt. Where suddenly some people had to sell themselves into slavery, actually. Just continue to eat. And what commentators mostly refer to in this is this isn't talking about commercial debt as much as this is talking about that poverty debt. Those who are vulnerable, those who are challenged, those that are in your community. And so we see that even with the people of Israel there. And then as you continue to read on in verse 4 and following, There should be no poor among you, for the Lord your God will greatly bless you in the land that he is giving you as a special possession. You will receive this blessing if you're careful to obey all the commands the Lord your God um, that I am giving you today. The Lord your God will bless you as he has promised. You will lend money to many nations but never need to borrow. You will rule many nations but they will not rule over you. But if there are any poor Israelites in your towns when you arrive in the land your Lord has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Instead, be generous and lend them whatever they need. Do not be mean-spirited and refuse someone alone because the year for canceling debts is close at hand. In other words, if it's year six and you're going to lend them debt, next year it gets forgiven, don't worry about that. He says, if you refuse to make the loan and the needy person cries out to the Lord, you will be considered guilty of sin. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly, for the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I'm commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. So there's this question all the time. What, like who, who's the poor? Who's the wealthy? We've talked about this before. I think it, it's answered anytime we see somebody in need and we've, we've got a resource that God has given us that we can help them with. We've talked before about even recent Stats Canada 
Stats show that if, if you make an average of $50,000 a year as an annual income earner, that you are in the top 1% to 2% in the world of income earners. And this idea that uh, in Saskatchewan, that number, 50000 is the average annual income for all people. And so it's really hard for us to say that, well, no, we're not the rich. Um, but we're rich any time that we see somebody who is in poverty and in struggling. And it's like, how do we respond to them in ways that can help and that can support? I want to just quickly draw out five principles that one commentator drew out of this section in Deuteronomy 15 that I think is helpful. And we'll go through these quickly. First of all, that we are in solidarity with our brothers and sisters. Verse 2 and 3, you see that. That we are in solidarity. In other words, Moses is saying, you need to take care of your fellow Israelites. Start with those people that are part of your clan. This faith community that you have, start there and care for those in need. And we do that in all kinds of ways. Secondly, we're urgently commanded to help the poor. Chapter, verse 4, verse 5, verse 9. I mean, in others, we see it very, very clearly. We're not saved by our works. But the evidence of our works in this area gives evidence of our faith. And so this teaching is so evident here from Moses that, that uh, we are urgently commanded to help the poor. Thirdly, God will bless those who help the poor. We see that in verse 6, verse 10. That, that there is this promise. We see that elsewhere in Scripture. This promise that God will bless you in all kinds of ways. And sometimes we make this, this kind of mathematical thing. Well, if I give monetarily, then I will get a certain percentage back. I don't think Scripture is teaching to that. Sometimes that can happen. But this blessing comes in so many different forms. Sometimes our reward is an eternal reward. In Proverbs it says, those who refresh others will they themselves be refreshed. And so there's a blessing that comes back upon you. Fourthly, what we have is from God. Verse 7 and 14, that idea that everything that we have, everything that we own is from God. And we're called to steward it. And then fifthly, this call that we have to live a generous life. And even there in, in verse uh, uh, 11, or sorry, verse 14, you see this idea that when, when a, a male servant is released from slavery, don't just send them off. Actually send them off with an astounding, generous gift. Give them a gift and bless them in all kinds of ways. You know, as a church, we try to give all kinds of opportunities for us to practice generosity. We try to do that with wisdom and discernment so that it's not overwhelming for us as a people that we have too many things coming at us, disconnected, disjointed, but we try to do it a little bit more systematically with some special things. We do it each Sunday of a weekly rhythm of receiving the tithes and offerings that we, we give, of some of which that God has given us. We do it at certain times of the year like Christmas where we give to food hampers and other special projects that we do. At our missions festival when we have other projects that we give to specifically or the food bank drive that we just came through in May. Sometimes it's urgent needs that are there in the world, like just a couple weeks ago I sent out an email to our church about the needs in Nepal and the tragic earthquake there and to give generously to MCC and Samaritan's Purse and places that are serving on the ground. We have two formal partnerships in uh, the Bridge Ministry in downtown Saskatoon and also in Panama that we send teams to. And even now, again, we have opportunities in two weeks is this pancake breakfast for the bridge. And they have capital needs of needing even $400,000 just to move into this new building and to start uh, some of the basic ministries that they want to continue as they meet the needs of the poor and marginalized in our city. And so an opportunity to give generously there of 
the, the, the goal of $21,000 for our Panama team to send this team and also the, the projects and the needs for the projects that are there uh, that we want to be generous to and give towards. So we try to give opportunities for us to respond. Why don't you turn quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and this powerful text, and we won't spend a lot of time here. I just want to touch on a few things where Paul is teaching this church in Corinth of what it means to live a generous life. And this idea that, that generosity proves your obedience. Generosity proves your faith to God, that you trust God, that you fear God. And Paul is saying, and he's talking about this offering that is being collected in, in 2 Corinthians 9, about giving to this church in Jerusalem. And he says, I want it to be a willing gift, not one that's given grudgingly. Verse 6. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. This whole principle of sowing and reaping. And this blessing that God returns and the multiplication that happens there. And he says, you must decide in your heart how to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully and God will generously provide all that you need and then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others as the scriptures say they share freely and give generously to the poor their good deeds will be remembered forever for god is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat in the same way he'll provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you and yes you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous when we take your gifts to those who need them they will thank god so two things will result from this ministry of giving the needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met, and they will joyfully express thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all the believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Jesus Christ. So this call to be cheerful and consistent givers. But don't wait for the former before you do the latter. Don't wait for the cheerfulness necessarily to be there. Like, to just start by consistent giving, as God calls us to. That it says in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says that it should be proportional. It says, given proportion to what you have, equal sacrifice, not necessarily equal giving. And so this idea that without a doubt, that regular, proportional, joyful giving is a serious aspect of discipleship and faith. You know, right at the end of Deuteronomy 15, there's this one line in verse 21. He says, he's talking about giving of the firstborn. And he says, you give the perfect one, the best one. He says, if this firstborn animal has any defect such as lameness or blindness or anything else is wrong with it, you must not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Give of the best. Some of you may remember, if you were around here in the fall of 2006. Thanksgiving 2006, we had a unique service here. And it was the beginning of our partnership with the bridge and this sense of giving generously and sacrificially of our best, not just the lame and the sick and so on. And so I called the church and asked us because most people bring their best and wear their Sunday best. And if you remember, if you were here, you do remember because we gave this call to give of your coats and your shoes and your money, three things. And I remember the struggle and the challenge of people with that. But the beauty of it is we packed up 11 massive boxes of leather coats and leather shoes and boots and all kinds of things. And we brought them down to the bridge and just blessed them with that. And the things that Linda did with that in that setting was astounding. But this powerful image that we give sacrificially, that we give of our best. So this morning, 
I want you to relax. I just wanted you to feel that tension for a minute as you were just drawing your purse close. And I was actually thinking of having a cell phone offering. I thought that'd be really cool. But then I thought that's going to get complicated. What do we do with all the data plans? I don't know. But I'm not asking you to, to respond in that way today. But I am asking you to respond. I am asking you to consider what, what is God teaching you in this area? What is God challenging you in this area in a new way? Maybe it's systematic weekly giving for the first time. Maybe it's extravagant giving going above and beyond. Maybe it's time to take the training wheels off and to step into it in a whole new way, in a whole new opportunity of faith. That we might give even these opportunities that are right in front of us, and there are many, but again, just to highlight these two of this team going down to Panama and and even the bridge and the pancake breakfast that's happening in in two weeks. Could we raise $30,000 at a pancake breakfast? Wouldn't that be amazing? That we would give extravagantly in these ways. So I want you to respond. I want to respond. I want us to respond to what God is teaching us about the tithe and about living a generous life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these profound texts that challenge us to the very core, challenge us to some of our deepest, most subtle idols maybe when it comes to money. And God, we just confess that we can be so quick to be disobedient. I confess that. Because so many times when when we fail in this area, and yet, God, we thank you for your grace. But thank you, Lord Jesus, that you continually call us forward and that you call us to build on the faith of today and have a new faith for tomorrow that grows with our confidence in who you are and seeing a bigger picture of the living God. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see more of you and less of us. Help us to see more of our stewardship role and give us the ability and the joy to live a generous life. Would you challenge us, continue to challenge us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.